great to have you all here. Um, you, you noticed verse 3 says, blessed is the one who reads aloud these words. So that's Alana sorted for the day. You can fall asleep now. The rest of us, on the other hand, uh, we have to do a little more than that. What do we have to do in verse 3? Hear it and take it to heart. So uh, our task is a little more complicated in order to receive the blessing here. And of course, uh, there's a great barrier to our hearing the book of Revelation, let alone heeding it. It's just weird. Let, Let me say that right up front. It's weird. And it's associated with weirdos. Those of you who have hung around with uh, Christians for a while know that uh, it's the weirdos who are into the book of Revelation. Um, Some of you will know this book by the American evangelist Hal Lindsey, published in 1970, The Late Great Planet Earth. He's also the author of such well-known volumes as Satan is Alive and Well on Planet Earth and 1980's Countdown to Armageddon. I kid you not, The Late Great Planet Earth was, according to the New York Times, the number one best-selling non-fiction book in America for the decade. And in uh, The Late Great Planet Earth, Hal Lindsey took the book of Revelation and paired it with events that were taking place in that generation. That was the kind of strategy. And key to the volume was that the founding of Israel in 1948 was the key apocalyptic trigger, and that within one generation of the founding of Israel in 1948, Armageddon would take place. That would mean 1988, which would be a real bummer for our bicentenary, remember, in 1988? Uh, And uh, he said that within a generation of the founding of Israel, there would be Armageddon, and of course Armageddon was provoked by the Soviet Union, who would come down and attack Israel, and that would be World War III, and in the midst of the great tribulation of World War III, Jesus would return. All right, you might think, well, that was the kind of stuff that people were into in the 1970s and the 1980s. It was quite an apocalyptic uh, couple of decades. But actually, I kid you not, three Sundays ago in the Canberra Times, page 7 a full-page ad by uh, a particular apocalyptic Christian ministry in Australia, which said that all of the economic crises we're experiencing, plagues around the world, the various earthquakes and wars that are breaking out now, are actually predicted in the book of Revelation. And this long, full-page essay uh, points out how you can know the events in Revelation are being fulfilled as we speak. And all of the kind of mysterious things like 666, the mark of the beast, uh, and the beast himself are all revealed in this full-page ad. You never guess who the beast was. Pope Francis. Okay. How tragic that a book with the name Revelation is so closely associated with obscurity and weirdness and complication. Because the word revelation in Greek is apokalypsis. It's the first word of the text. It literally means to take out of hiding. Apokalypsis. Apokalypsis. Apocalypse. It means a disclosure. It means actually to make something clear that wasn't clear. The idea that it's been associated with such weird, obscure views is 
tragic and is why a lot of Christians avoid this book altogether. But it's an apocalypse to be understood. And this first word, apocalypsis, it gives me the first of the three things I want to share with you today. I want to spend a few moments talking about apocalyptic, because this word at the front of Revelation gives us the whole literary genre that uh, this book falls into. So we've got to do a little bit of work on that this morning. And then I want to show that really, although it's kind of a scary book, it's also just a letter from a real person in the first century to a bunch of real churches of the first century containing standard theology that you find in all New Testament letters. And then finally, I want to spend a few moments looking at the vision in the book of Revelation. There are two, and the first one falls in our passage, and the second one takes up the rest of the book, but the first vision is the one that unlocks the whole thing. Sound like a plan? All right. Well, when we were doing the Genesis series, I said one of the keys to be a Bible reader today is to read the Bible like a grown-up. Do you remember that? The Genesis series. It's so important to know what kind of literary style you're in. Don't just read it all as one kind of genre. That, that's sort of naive, kiddie stuff. If you're a grown-up, you know you've got to be looking out for poetry, you've got to be looking out for prose, you've got to look out for historical narrative, you've got to look out for parable. You've also got to look out for a literary genre that we no longer have in this world but was very popular in the time John was written. It's called apocalyptic, which is, let me give you uh, the definition of it, a Jewish literary style used in anxious times, to unveil vital universal truths through coded imagery. There's my fourfold definition. All of the examples we have of apocalyptic from the ancient world are Jewish. It appears in the Old Testament, of course, the book of Daniel uh, has some examples. book of Zechariah has quite a few examples of this apocalyptic style. Uh, but in the intertestamental period, between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New we have plenty of examples. A book you've probably never heard of called uh, One Enoch, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, which you probably have heard of, have several examples of apocalyptic. It's a particularly Jewish form of literature used for anxious times. All of the examples we have of apocalyptic from the ancient world seem to be written to believers, Jewish believers, who are under great stress from the Greek Empire, then from the Roman Empire. And uh, apocalyptic seems to be written to say it's, it's okay in these anxious times, don't abandon or adjust the faith, stay faithful. And it's in this context that apocalyptic is designed to unveil vital universal truths, not specific predictions. That's the important thing. It isn't about this matches that. That, that this beast is the Pope, or this beast is the USSR. It, it, that's not the way to think of it. it. It's really a theology of history that you get from apocalyptic. And of course, the most common feature of the style is the coded imagery. Beasts, lampstands, trumpets, angels, stars, weird numbers strange patterned colors, and on and on it goes. And like a good code, it's meant to be obscure to those on the outside and perfectly clear to those on the inside. That's what codes are for. Especially in anxious times when the Greeks and Romans are looking over your shoulder, you use a code and they're going, they're just weird. 
But you can say all sorts of fun things by code about your oppressors without them knowing. I mean, this is maybe not the best example, but, uh, you know, if I say to you, I love it when the wallabies crushed those kiwis that one time. (laughs) You know what I mean, okay? But if someone doesn't know rugby, they might actually be fretting about some giant army of marsupials that took on these cute little birdies in New Zealand. But when you're in the know, you you don't make those mistakes, and that's what we have here. My, My point is, apocalyptic is meant to be clear to those with eyes to see and ears to hear. As you can tell from all the clarity words in the opening paragraph, the revelation, boy, I hope you've got this open in front of you, you're really going to want it today. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words, the lector in the ancient church, the the official position that Alana filled this morning, the person privileged to read aloud the text. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart. The goal of our 12 weeks together as we study the book of Revelation is actually to understand it so that we can have the blessing of heeding it, taking it to heart. Please don't be scared of this beautiful book. Well, as weird as Revelation may seem to us, it is also just a letter. It's just a letter with the same kind of themes you find in all the letters of the New Testament. See verses 4 to 8. They are classic ancient letter style, introducing us to the author, the recipients, and then offering an opening blessing. If you know the New Testament epistles well, you know that's pretty much how they all begin. Author, recipient, opening, blessing. Verse 4. John to the seven churches of the province of Asia. John, the author. Uh, Which John? From the earliest times, the church said, John, son of Zebedee, the apostle of Jesus, eyewitness to the Lord Jesus himself. And there was very uniform agreement from the very early uh, decades after this was written that that's who it comes from. Certainly no other John we know of from the ancient church could just say John without further qualification, right? John writes to the seven churches. Who else in antiquity had the authority of John, son of Zebedee, apostle of Jesus and eyewitness? No one. The other curious thing, to be nerdy just for one second, is that there are all sorts of really interesting verbal and thematic parallels between the Gospel of John, written by John, son of Zebedee, and the book of Revelation, that only are really strong parallels between those two books and the letters of John that precede the book of Revelation, Uh, same author. Uh, Words like victory, thirst, the dominance of life and death language, the prominence of divine statements that begin, I am, right? These are very common across the literature and suggesting we're dealing with the same author. 
We also learn the recipients. John to the seven churches of the province of Asia. Now, please don't think he's writing to China or even to Pakistan when it says Asia. Asia in this period, um, as weird as that may sound, just referred to Turkey. That was Asia. Uh, And we're told specifically it's to the seven churches of Asia, who are in fact named in verse 11, uh, just before the vision gets going. It says, write on a scroll and send it to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon. Well, there there are the seven churches up there. And actually, next week we're going to begin looking at chapters 2 and 3, where you'll find within this letter seven mini-letters. You see at chapter 2, a letter to Ephesus, and then a letter to Smyrna, then a letter to Pergamum, and, uh, and, and, and so on. There were more than seven churches in Asia in this period. Uh, For for starters, we know that Colossae had a church, Herapolis had a church, Miletus almost certainly had a church too. So why does John only refer to the seven? Well, it's possible that he just felt his visionary message was particularly relevant to those seven and not to the others. It's possible he thought of those seven as the main churches and the other ones as satellite churches who would receive the message just because they're satellites. Or, more plausibly, seven is the, uh, in Jewish numerology, uh, seven is the number for perfection or wholeness. And uh, John uses seven throughout uh, this book uh, to mean the sort of perfection and wholeness. And that's probably what's going on here. Um, It's just Jewish symbolism that the seven churches represent all possible recipients who would ever receive this letter, including the church in Roseville. Well, like a typical ancient letter, we don't just get the author, the recipients. It opens uh, with a blessing, which, as I said, many New Testament epistles begin with. And from verse 4, second half, the blessing is basically a summary of Christianity. We're introduced to God as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the triune God. The emphasis falls on the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it climaxes on the return of Jesus to judge the world. Does that sound like a certain creed we say every week? The triune God, absolute emphasis on Jesus' death and resurrection and concluding, climaxing with his return to establish the kingdom. Let's look at this blessing, and you'll see it's quite remarkable how this unfolds. Um, Like the creed, uh, this blessing is from the triune God, because look, grace and peace to you, verse 4b, from, here it is, him who was, uh, sorry, is and who was and who is to come, that's clearly God the Father. Then it says, and from the spirits, seven spirits before his throne. Now, suddenly you'll get weirded out by that. Seven spirits? That's not the Holy Spirit. Yes, it is. John expects you to know Zechariah 4, verses 1 to 6, from the Old Testament, where there's a vision of a great big bowl of oil with uh, seven tubes, as it were, going to seven lampstands, and the seven uh, uh, tunnels of oil, the seven tunnels of oil are said to be a picture of the Holy Spirit, okay? So now you know that. And so when he says, this grace and peace comes not only from God the Father, it comes from the seven spirits. And you can see in your footnote, actually, footnote uh, A says sevenfold spirit. I'll go with that. 
It's clearly a reference to Zechariah. But what about the Son of God? Well, look, it's not only from, the seven, not only from God the Father, not only from the seven spirits, and from, verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from among the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And just like the creed, we'll all say later in the service, the emphasis is clearly on the death and resurrection of Jesus for our salvation. Please don't miss that. Look at the next line. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father. An absolute focus on Jesus' death and resurrection for the salvation of you from your sins and the judgment that would come as a result. And just like the creed, it climaxes with the return of Jesus. Verse 7, look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. The reason I'm pointing this out is that these few opening lines of blessing give us the whole of Christianity. The triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Absolute emphasis on Jesus' death and resurrection so you could receive salvation. Climaxing on the return of Jesus for a great reckoning. The greatest indictment of those futurist interpretations of Revelation that match it with the Pope or match it with Russia, is that there's more modern politics than there is ancient gospel in those interpretations. And John would be outraged because in his opening blessing, he says, whatever else you get from this book, please get this. God is Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus died and rose so you could be saved. And there will come a day when he returns for a great reckoning. Let's commit together, as we read this book together, as we study this book over 12 weeks, not to fall down the rabbit holes, but to remember this gospel, this central teaching of Christianity that pervades this book. Well, Revelation is apocalyptic, yes, it discloses what we need to know. It's also a real letter with normal Christian theology, just like all the other letters. Yet, it's also a series of visions. Two, in fact. Just two, which I know sounds weird. The first one is here at the end of chapter one uh, that Alana just uh, read us a moment ago. It's just 10 verses. You know what the second vision is? It starts at chapter four, verse one, Second vision of the book of Revelation. After this I looked and there before me was a door standing open to heaven and the voice I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. That vision lasts until chapter 22 of the book. Of the book. We, we have a, that seems totally out of whack, doesn't it? You've got a 10-verse vision followed by a 19-chapter vision. Well, it's because this vision at the front, the little 10 verses, is the key to unlock the whole thing. 
If you get this vision, you'll get all the visions, I promise. So let's uh, look pretty carefully at this. John introduces us to his vision. It's got a certain context that we've got to observe in verse 9, where he speaks of his shared suffering with the recipients. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's on this little island, 50 kilometers off the coast of Turkey. What's he doing there? He tells us because of the word of God and the testimony. He has been exiled. Um, This was pretty normal. When Romans didn't quite want to kill a public leader, they just exiled you, put you on an island where you couldn't do much damage. And it seems like John, at the end of the first century, is the eyewitness for the whole of Asia. And the Romans were, by the end of the first century, getting pretty annoyed at Christianity. And so they thought, well, let's not kill John, you know, because that could uh, cause riots throughout the great cities of Asia Minor. Uh, let's send him to an island. He can't do any damage there. You can't get off the island very easily without official uh, permission. He's stuck there. But the thing I want you to notice is he says he's a companion in the sufferings. In other words, here is a hint that the recipients themselves on the mainland are now experiencing suffering for Jesus from Roman authorities. And actually, the, the, the visions that unfold in the book of Revelation will make perfectly clear what kind of sufferings they're actually facing. They have to bow down to the imperial statues, otherwise they're killed. They can't buy and sell without the mark of the beast, which we'll talk about when we get to that fun and games in a few weeks. But the thing is, we have a pretty good idea of what these Christians were facing. Because we have extraordinary Roman evidence from a neighboring province. See where it says Bithynia up there, just north of Pergamon? Amazing Roman evidence from within 10 years of the book of Revelation. Here is the Roman governor Pliny, pagan, writing to Emperor Trajan about his practice of killing Christians. He says, I tried to extract the truth by torture from two slave women whom they called deaconesses. I found nothing but a degenerate sort of cult. I dismiss any who deny that they were or ever had been Christians when they repeat after me a formula calling upon our gods and make offerings of wine and incense to your statue, O Trajan, and revile the name of Christ. If they persist in their ways, I order them to be led away for execution. I am a good Roman after all. That's the sort of thing you've got to imagine. And this vision is just what companions in suffering need to survive and to thrive. Well, the vision is full of sensory overload. There are trumpets one second, there's dazzling lights the next second, there's rushing waters the next... It's probably meant to be sensory overload. But at the heart of the vision is something very simple. A man walking among seven lampstands. That's it. 
Verse 12. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. Lampstand, man. We learn that the lampstands are pretty easy to understand. That's the seven churches, right? No puzzle there. Uh, It's always good when Jesus interprets the vision for you. I like that. Uh, So in verse 20, he explains the vision. Uh, Verse 20 says, The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The person walking amongst the lampstands is, of course, Jesus. But I want you to notice two Really quite amazing things that ancient readers will have spotted, but for us requires a little bit of hard work. Notice two descriptions. He's like a son of man. Do you hear that? Verse 13. And what's his hair like? White like wool. And of course, there's fire all around him. Now, think of this. A son of man who has super white hair. This is the combination of two visions from the Old Testament that were two of the most well-known visions in apocalyptic literature of the Old Testament from Daniel chapter 7. But but the thing I want you to notice is that John combines the two visions in one, but in Daniel they're two separate visions. Watch this. As I looked, said Daniel, thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days, this is God himself, took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. Exactly the language John uses. His throne, of course, was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. Vision one. Then vision two in the same chapter. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man. Exactly the same expression. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the ancient of days, who's a separate figure. And was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. This was weird in Daniel. Because how could there be two separate figures? The Lord God with the white hair and a son of man who gets all of God's authority. But in Revelation chapter 1, they are the one person. Here's my point. Jesus is not a teacher only. He is not your life coach. He is not your best path to a full life. He's not even a prophet or a king. He is the Lord God. He has absolute authority. And this is a major theme of the book of Revelation. We see it actually also in the words of this Jesus. In verse 17, verse 17 says, I fell before him as though dead, he placed his right hand on me. But look what he says, this Jesus, son of man with the white hair, do not be afraid, I am the first and last. Hmm. 
This is the first in a series, or sorry, it's the second in a series of unfolding titles that are quite extraordinary. There's a lot of work on this in, uh, in scholarship, but I, I want you to spot this. In chapter 1, verse 8, it's God who says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. We've already read that. Now here in chapter 1, verse 17, it's Jesus Christ who says, I am the first and the last, which is a similar concept, Alpha, Omega, first, last. But then in chapter 21, verse 6, it's God again who says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And then in the climactic reference, chapter 22, verse 13, it's Jesus Christ who says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. All of the divine titles are Jesus. The point is that the one who walks among us has absolute authority over us. First, last, beginning, end, alpha, omega, the Lord God walks among the lampstands and his name is Jesus. Many of you know that I lost my dad when I was nine, but I have these powerful memories of feeling safe when he was in the house. Partly aided by stories mum had told us when we were really little about her having seen dad break up a fight in a pub by lifting a man square against the wall of the pub and that was the end of the fight. Imagine what impression that left on me as a nine-year-old. You know, my father is Superman. And and, uh, we also learned that during the night one time when we were asleep, dad chased an intruder out of the house with a big stick he had under his bed. We're thinking, wow. Real or imagined, I was safe when dad was in the house. Forget that. Jesus is in the house. Every house. He owns the room. Every room. And you know, he too has a big stick. Sort of, verse 16. In his right hand, seven stars. Look at this. Coming out of his mouth was a big stick. Oh, okay. A sharp, double-edged sword. Why is it coming out of his mouth? Because it's just a picture of his word. This is not a picture of violence. This is a picture of his word. And it's absolute ability to cut us to the heart, to have his way. It's this gospel word of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And Jesus' death and resurrection for our sins and his return for a great reckoning. It's that word. Everything that is opposed to that word will be overturned. And everything that conforms and clings to that word will survive and thrive. No wonder John falls down as though dead. Do you see that? Verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then listen to this lovely play on the words life and death. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. 
And now look, I am alive forever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. We're meant to spot this. We're meant to go, John falls down as though dead. Who wouldn't? But this one touches John's shoulder with his right hand and says, I died for you. And I rose again for you. So get up. He is master over life and death. There is in this a double message. A double message. When we think about Jesus in all his majesty walking amongst his churches, present with us, in the house, as it were. We're meant to pick up two, two themes, not just one. On the one hand, yes, it brings comfort and safety. We're meant to be able to live in this world with all the craziness going on, calm, because we know Jesus is in the house. Whatever happens to us, Jesus is in the house. It's okay. It's comfort. But on the other hand, I don't want you to miss that this is also a little bit of warning I don't mean to the world, I mean to the church. Because where we are tempted to give up on the faith or adjust the faith, this same one walks in great majesty right alongside you. Now we know this is meant to be a double message, not just a single comfort message, but also a warning message, because in the very next section, which we'll explore next week, these, the letters to the seven churches are both comfort and warning, all right? So, for example, just look at chapter 2 with me, which we'll explore in detail next week. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them to be false. You have um, persevered and, and endured hardships for my name. You've not grown weary yet. I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Repent. More of that next week. These are anxious times. Broadly speaking. Uh, The pace of change is like no other era in world history. And I know some of us love that. Some of us are sort of change-obsessed. It is true that change is one of the greatest triggers for anxiety. Or think of the unpredictability of state actors at the moment. Oh my goodness, Bashar al-Assad in Syria. Who knows what's happening there? Russia. North Korea. The US, for goodness sake. Christianity and the ethics that we've been used to for centuries as a culture are being overturned, and this creates anxiety for some. Terrorism is an ever-present threat, and we know that anxiety as a medical condition is at epidemic proportions in the West. Something's really wrong. 
And then there are special anxieties that Christians face. Hardly a day goes by, especially if you listen to ABC like I do, where Christianity is not pilloried. Just this morning in the news before I came up here, there was this terrible ABC report about Christians behaving badly. But you'd get the impression that's all they do. And and then you're in the world and your friends ask you questions about theology or ethics and the anxiety and heartbeat goes up. And then there's what Tom said last week about the fear of missing out. That's a Christian anxiety. You look at all your friends progress and make money and have holidays and have a much better retirement plan than you do and you want to chase that. You're anxious. Can I really follow Jesus and be just as materialistic as everyone around me? Anxiety. There are two ways to deal with anxiety. There are probably more, but there are two ways that it expresses itself amongst Christians. One is fear. The other is adjustment. Fear is where you'll hardly stick your head above the parapet, at work or amongst friends, at the pub, whatever. Just don't say I'm Christian. Keep your head down. Your prayers are full of lament and woe and anxiety. No joy, no praise. And your attitude toward the world is all negative. The world's all bad. That Christian persecution complex, which is increasing in the West, even though it really shouldn't. That's one way of expressing the anxiety. The other is, sadly, perhaps a little more common, adjustment. You cope with the dissonance between your beliefs and the world by adjusting your beliefs. You drop certain convictions that are problematic, theological convictions. The judgment of God, hell, the full divinity of Jesus Christ. You drop certain ethical convictions that you know are controversial. So on the one side, you you drop the sexual ethics that are clearly taught in Scripture. Or on the other side, you, you drop the clear teaching about how we should be treating asylum seekers. Because you don't want to be controversial. Or you drop the commitments you know that Jesus really wants of you. Financially, in terms of prayers and reading of Scripture, fellowshipping with God's people, you drop them. You cope with the discord and dissonance by adjustment. I'm not supernatural. I don't read minds. I rely on the Spirit to speak to you. Whether you're living in fear or adjustment. The antidote to both, of course, is right here. A fresh vision of Jesus' absolute majesty walking amongst us. Oh my goodness. 
So I end by suggesting a thought experiment. I'd love you to practice this week. I plan to practice it every day. I want you to watch for the moments in your week that, that heighten anxiety for you. Maybe it's when your friends ask you about the Christian faith. Maybe it's some report that criticizes Christians. Maybe it's a temptation to disloyalty this week. Maybe it's just the hassles of work and relationships. Whatever it is, notice the heightened anxiety and then stop and picture in your mind's eye Jesus in all his glory in the house, walking with us, touching us with his right hand. And watch the anxiety subside. Then repeat. Our Heavenly Father, we pause before you. Ask that you would speak to us. In the power of your spirit, through your word. Wherever we find ourselves this morning fearful or adjusting. Help us, Lord, to have a fresh vision of the Lord Jesus in all his majesty, walking with us, touching us with his right hand. May we, all of us, live in these anxious times with your peace. We ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus.